Welcome to the Scientific Sense podcast, where we explore emerging ideas from science, policy, economics, and technology. My name is Gil Epen. We talk with world's leading academics and experts about their recent research or general areas of topical interest. Scientific Sense is an unstructured conversation with no agenda or preparation. We cover a wide variety of domains where new discoveries are made and new technologies are developed on a daily basis. We are most interested in how new ideas affect society and help educate the world how to pursue a rewarding and enjoyable life rooted in science, logic and information. We seek knowledge without boundaries or constraints and provide unedited content of conversations with researchers and leaders who love what they do a companion blog to this podcast can be found at scientificsense.com and this podcast is available on over a dozen platforms and directly at scientificsense.net if you have suggestions for topics guests and other ideas please send them to info@scientificsense.com and i can be reached at gil@epen.info My guest today is Professor Leah Kubitzer, who is professor in the Department of Psychology and Center for Neuroscience at the University of California, Davis. Her current research focuses on the impact of early experience on the cortical phenotype, and she specifically examines the effects of the sensory environment on the development of connections, functional organization, and behavior, and seeks to understand how culture impacts brain development. Welcome, Leah. Thank you. So I want to start with uh, these topics are extremely interesting. Uh, I, I have a little knowledge of them, uh, but I want to start with the 2018 paper, the combinatorial creature, a uh, cortical phenotypes within the within and across lifetimes. So as you say here, there are multiple time scales that are relevant for understanding how a given phenotype emerges. Brains change across large evolutionary time scales, short time scales such as generations and within the life of an individual. So we, we see this happening <laughs> to, to individuals uh, as we age, and we have seen this happening across generations, and we know this has happened uh, across evolutionary time, uh, time scales. So what is the sort of the, uh, let, let me uh, step back for a minute. Um, I want to get some definitions. So what is cortical phenotypes? What is the definition of that? Okay, so a phenotype is some observable characteristic. And so a cortical phenotype, there are observable ca- characteristics, um, and, and there are a number of ways you can look at these characteristics. One is you can actually look at a brain under a microscope and you can observe that different portions of the brain look differently. Um, you, can, you can try to understand function by recording from neurons in a particular portion of the cortex and see what they like to listen to. Would they like to listen to visual stimuli or touch or audition? You can look at connectivity so that these are ways. So let's say area A in the cortex is connected to area B, C and D. So a cortical phenotype is this sort of how it looks, what its function is and how it's interconnected. So things that I can actually measure and study. Okay. Um, and so so 
so when I talk about the cortical phenotype changing over different time scales, what I mean is that, let's take connections, for example. It used to be thought that major changes in connectivity and function occur over very long time scales of evolution. But it turns out that I can actually change, or, or indiv individuals within a population can change the connections of a brain um, in er during early development based on the context in which that brain develops and the sensory experience and social experience that those individuals ha have. And we actually have some papers that, that show that you can have what we th thought was long, like uh, changes that occur over long time scales can actually occur over shorter time scales. And so the idea was, and this has been an old argument, nature versus nurture. What is the yeah. genes and what is the environment? And it used to be thought that genes are the, the big players. And of course, genes are the, um, the conduits of evolution. They're, they're the thing that's inherited across generations. However, it turns out that the environment and early, especially the early environment can alter phenotypes um, in, 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 in really large ways, not just fine tune them. And, and, and I've even argued that one of the things that makes humans different is not the specific gene for one particular thing, but our abilities to so rapidly change our phenotype, or particularly our cortex, over the course of a generation or even over the course of a lifetime. So for example, I was just talking to people in my laboratory and you know, I was not born and raised in the uh, an environment with a lot of cell phones and devices. And they were telling me that it's it's that people have all kinds of YouTube videos out now where babies, when they're given they're given iPod, iPads to watch yeah. TV, do all kind of stuff, when they're actually given a, a real book, they 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 go up like this. <laughs> I mean, they learn really rapidly. This is a motor skill they learn really rapidly early in development that I never learned and I didn't associate with turning a page, for example. And all behavior is generated by the brain, absolutely positively, no matter what you say. That is a behavior that's different. That means the brain has to have changed at either some macroscopic or microscopic level that allows for the emergence of, of, of this new, new behavior that appears early in the development of, of, of our offspring. So it's sort of the end outcome, uh, the phenotype. Um, so is it the correct way to think about, to think about an individual baby comes in with uh, some sort of a hardware, <laughs> gene-based hardware, maybe some basic operating system uh, applications like how to smile, how to cry, how to survive maybe. Mm -hmm. uh, and then they start putting on apps, right? And those apps are going to change them into the future. So it is really the environment that gives you the apps as you grow up. Is that the right way to think about it? I guess. I mean, I think that there's no question that that there is a kind of a blueprint. So I can look across all different species and do what's called a comparative analysis, and I can see what has evolution produced. So my, I, okay, so let, let me back up for a second. The problem with trying to understand evolution is that you can't understand it directly. It, it, it occurs over the course of, you know, tens of thousands to millions of years. So what do you do? You say, okay, I'm not going to do anything, or you can do two things. You can use a comparative approach that says what has evolution produced. Look at lots of different brains. I can look at their architecture. I can look at their connectivity. I can look at their function. And I say, what's the same and what's different? And we know from our comparative studies um, that there are features of the brain that are the same across all species, even if they don't use that particular sense. So, so that you're kind of stuck with this part of the blueprint. So for example, blind mole rats, um, they have micro, microphthalmic eyes, skin has grown over their eyes. So they really don't use their visual system in any kinds of ways that we use our visual system. They use it for um, you know, circadian functions. Yeah. They yeah. still have 
a retinogeniculocortical pathway. They still have this area in cortex called V1. You can see it, you can identify it by parts, by part by its connections. It's been co-opted by the auditory system, but it means you can't get rid of it. So there is this sort of layout or, or constellation of cortical fields and their connectivities that you're kind of stuck with. It's our evolutionary history. So I said that the comparative approach is one way to try to understand evolution. That tells us what evolution has produced. It's produced brains that look like this. It's produced special, if you have a specialization in behavior, you're gonna see this sort of specialization in the cortex. It doesn't tell us how phenotypic transformations occur. How does it occur that my brain is different than a chimpanzee's brain? How, is, how does it occur that my brain is actually different than your brain? Um, you study development because the evolution of the neocortex is actually the evolution of developmental mechanisms that give rise to some of these aspects of the phenotype, right? So something's being tweaked in this lineage that's not being tweaked in the other lineage, and you can end up with a larger cortical sheet, for example, right? Yeah. But, 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 it, but even within the lifetime of an individual across a population, you and I have shared enough sensory experiences. We share some genes in common, right? We're both humans. Um, but your 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 developmental early developmental experience is not the same as mine. So I would say your brain isn't wired exactly like mine. And in fact, if you took your genome and plopped you thirty years into the future or fifty years backwards, you wouldn't have the you wouldn't be Gil Espan as you are now. You you would there would be a lot a number of different differences, a number of different changes to your brain. Okay, am I rambling? Just tell, shut me up if I'm rambling. No, no. So. Um, so is there some, okay, so are we up to a point that we have a lot of data? We can look into the brain, we can look at its functions, we can sort of look at the map of the brain, so to speak. Can we use machine learning techniques to sort of predict what the brain is supposed to do and likely to do? Well, you, there's been a lot of, you know, use of machine learning algorithms to understand certain features of complexity of the brain, and, and they can go they can go so far. I mean, I think, I mean, we would like to use these sorts of algorithms to give, you know, pump in a whole bunch of comparative data and say, and with this, this brain is, is from an animal that is diurnal, uh, you know, um, arboreal, um, eats color, eats a lot of fruit, so has a good visual system, and its brain looks like this. And if you put put enough of that information in, presumably with these sorts of algorithms, you can, you can evolve a brain forward or you could even evolve it backwards and say, okay, what 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 would the last common ancestor look like if these are its descendants? So that's kind of cool. So I think you can you can do this, um, at at least at the level that we're looking at. I have to tell you, I'm not like I'm not Miss Computational Neuroscientist, so don't probe me too deeply on this because I'll. <laughs> and I don't I'm not either. Like <laughs> I'm not either. Okay, let's not. Um, but, but I think, but even before these algorithms just doing this huge comparative approach, which I've done, yeah. I looked at 45 different species. Sure, I can predict what, what what a future brain might look like if you give me the context. I can tell you what's not gonna happen because evolution is actually the continuing um, path of limiting, limiting our options because we're stuck with a lot of this stuff, our evolutionary history, like the action potential, um, certain patterns of connectivity, this constellation of cortical fields. So there are constraints in how you're gonna build a brain. So I, I know what's not gonna happen. And if I know the context and I, and I know if there are changes in your body morphology or behavior, I can make predictions of what the cortex is going to look like. I think if we if we fed that into computers and, and use these algorithms, they could probably do a much better job. But I can certainly eyeball it. Um, and what, what you're saying is let's formalize this and see, if, you know, and, 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 and what's cool about this is it could allow us to understand the brains of species that we're not going to study. 
we're not going to study whales and dolphins, right? We're not going to study we're not going to study African elephants and go into their brains. We might get their brains after they're dead and we can cut them and look at them, but that's not the same as understanding what the functional organization might be like. But if we put in enough of the parameters, I think we can make really good predictions. So it's sort of a constrained optimization sort of a problem, right? So as you go down in time, if I understand this correctly, yeah, you, you're picking up more and more constraints. The blueprint is getting constrained. So right. the design, design choices you have are somewhat getting limited, oh, right? That's exactly right. Okay, so think about this. I mean, do you, you know what the action potential is? It's no. how neurons, okay, it's how neurons talk to each other. And the way they talk to each other is very long and involved and re requires a recapitulation of electrochemical event along this axon, and it can take long. Anytime I teach students about this, they're like, why do neurons talk to each other like this? It just sort of seems so crazy. Really long time ago in the history of, of the evolution of cell-cell of communication, this was selected for. And all species use it. You can't get rid of it. Could there have been other ways? Yes, a multitude of other ways. But our options are now limited by this event that, that occurred a very long time ago. So, and it requires within cell membranes, a lipid membrane, sodium and potassium channels. You can't get rid of them, you're dead. You get rid of them, you're dead. So you can modify things slightly and you can tweak. And this is what evolution does. Um, and I suggest you read Jacob's Evolution and Tinkering. It was an essay written in the 70s, really beautiful science essay about this very thing. You got a bunch of stuff on the table and you can reconfigure it and make it into different things, but you're still limited by the stuff on the table. So, um, does this have some implications for extinction? So, if if by definition, it uh, the problem is getting more and more constrained, few options left from a design perspective, will well, we get more and more rigid? Then, but just time? be careful. Just be careful because uh, this is the very first review I ever wrote. Is our species differences really so different? And I can say, oh, we're really constrained. We're really not that different. There's really not that much under the sun. But then I can also look at the huge amount of variability that species have evolved and say. There is still a lot of, of variability that that can be had based on changes in, in the brain and body. One thing humans have done, I think, to sort of circumvent some of these constraints is our neocortex. We have an expanded neocortex, and I think that there's a relatively large portion of our neocortex that isn't part of that blueprint that we're stuck with that that we create during the course of a, of a prolonged development. And that that is that's huge, right? That allows is it us just to... humans. Is no, it no, just humans? No, other species. Other species can do this as well. But the amount of cortex that we have that I think is being built during development is quite large. I think a lot of our posterior parietal cortex, our, our infratemporal cortex, and our prefrontal cortex, and other species don't have this sort of amount of cortex um, that that you can actually change rather dramatically based on early experience, early sensory experience, early social experience. Um, so but neocortex neo is like new cortex. That's what it means. Right. It's well, sort of it's it's the outer part of the brain that's expanded greatly in primates, but it's ooh, but it's also expanded greatly in elephants and and cetaceans and 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 other beasts as well. Um, whether it's expanded the same way in those in those groups in terms of the the amount of cortex that's assigned versus not is not clear because we really can't we can't study those brains directly. Um, we can look at architecture on a microscope, but it doesn't really tell us much about function. Um, but no, no. And in fact, I have a lot to say about humans and human evolution and human development. And I don't study humans. I study 
everything but a human. Humans are just another example of the process, right? They're another example of what evolution has produced. And my question is not what makes humans humans, it's how could evolution have produced something so complex as a human? What are the rules of construction? What are the constraints? Can I, um, can I, can I formulate some um, equations or a set of equations that, that, that can capture um, those rules and allow me to sort of generate brains, but you know, based on what I know about brains and behavior. That was that was definitely a ramble. Just ooh. okay. I know. So is there sort of an exercise effect here? I mean, the the more you exercise your brain, the more configurations you can get to, or anything like that. I mean, I mean, clearly, on an individual, we can see a bit of that, but does that exist across generations? Yeah, I I mean, I I, I won't necessarily say exercise your brain. I mean you're using 100% of your brain, or you're using your brain all the time, right? There aren't these big, huge blank spaces that are just sitting around waiting to be active. Because, because the brain is a metabolic monster. You do not generate something that requires that much energy that you're just, it's like idling, waiting to be used. What I will say is that, as I said before, all behavior is generated by the brain, and your behavior changes over time. And in fact, your brain is different right now than it was, slightly different than it was before we started this interview. Yeah. And that means something has to change within your brain. So you are capable of adult plasticity. You're, you're capable of learning new things and you can get better at them even as an adult practicing. You're not gonna grow new connections as an adult, um, which uh, during development, you can actually you can actually change connectivity, which are, is sort of the, the hardwiring of the brain, but you can change, um, I wanna call it synaptic effic efficacy, meaning the air portions of the neurons that are in communication with each other, you can actually change the strength of, of those little points that, that are commu communicating with each other based on experience throughout a lifetime. And if, if you have lots of synapses, and we have billions and billions of synapses, and you have those little changes occurring, um, that's a lot of degrees of freedom for changing your brain. Because look, you, you're, you're, you, you, you know, and this is anecdotal, but it's true, you're a different person now than you were five years ago. You're, you know, your thoughts are different. You don't, and you can see these big changes like between the time you're 20 versus 40, um, so there, so there are, we have these, these, these brain changes occurring every second, um, you know, um, so I, I don't know if that answers your question, but that's my answer and I'm, I'm going with it. Yeah. <laughs> but, but we do see decline, cognitive decline as you age. And so that is related to sort of the hardware being set, so to speak, right? But what you're saying it, is we can go in there and sort of polish yeah, it up a little bit. In that humans aren't really biologically meant to live until they're 90 years old. Um, but modern medicine has allowed us to survive for longer and longer periods of time. Everyone goes through naturally occurring cell death. You you have more cells the day you're born than neural cells than the, than the day you die. Because naturally occurring cell death happens a lot during early development. But you're, you, you lose cells, I think on the order of about 10,000 neurons a day. If you, if you drink alcohol, you probably lose more. But this is a natural occurring process and you're losing, and after 60, 70, 80 years, um, your brain has lost a number of neurons. Maybe it's not like Alzheimer's where they're, you know, it's, it's um, concentrated in certain regions of the brain, um, but everyone is gonna go through a cognitive decline. And, and I mean, we, we can feel this in ourselves, right? I don't, am I as sharp as I was when I was 50? Not, not really, um, <laughs> but this naturally occurring cell death happens. And it just, it, and you know, 
but that, that's different than uh, early dementia or Alzheimer's. But it's something you're going to see in a lot of brains. And I think there are a number of studies where they show, they can show that your soul site and your cortex grow further and further apart because you have a reduction in cells, which means a reduction in white matter. And so you, there's just less of it there. And this, I think this accumulation uh, over a lifetime, you, you, can't, you can't get away from that. And so I know people want to take drugs and they want to practice and they think if they do crossword puzzles every day, it's going to make them, you know, sharper. Maybe it will keep them at some level of, of competency for crossword puzzles. You know, how much of this is generalizable to other things is not completely clear. Yeah, so I want to touch on one more thing and then want to go into another paper. So neocortex, uh, if I understand this correctly, sort of a late arrival in mammals, or at least the size of it has substantially changed or expanded. I mean, people say that the, you know, that neocortex only exists in mammals and early mammals had a, like a little teeny yeah. tiny sheet. Yeah. Um, yeah. If, if, I, if I stretched the human neocortex out and got rid of all the wrinkles and I, it would, it would be as the size of my office floor, right? It'd be enormous, mm -hmm. huge expansion. And so, so this, this is, what, what, is, what is your feeling? This is not an accidental evolutionary quirk. Is it? Evolution just is. There's no right, there's no wrong, there's no direction. Things aren't evolving towards the human condition. In fact, you know, humans at the rate we're going, A, way overproducing ourselves. There are not enough resources on the planet to sustain this sort of life. And species don't hang around for long periods of time. They don't hang around for hundreds of millions of years. They go extinct. Um, and But we are not doing anything as a human being, I'm like, yes, we're, we're, you know, climate change sucks. We're polluting the planet. We're losing our water supply. We're losing the species. So yes, as a human being, this is terrible. As an evolutionary neurobiologist, we are not doing anything any other species would not do in our position, which is completely, um, you know, using, using all the resources in the environment available to us. We can have this vague idea of our grandchildren and the future generations, but not enough to actually stop us. <laughs> Right. right. Um, and so so there's no direction and there is no right or there is no wrong in evolution. It, it, it just is. Yeah. Which is, which is so if it were. Sorry, go ahead. Sorry. Go I said, which is, which is fantastic, which is not nihilistic. It's fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, so it's, in some sense, there is no predictability. Right. So given initial conditions. You we can't really predict what's going to happen, say, 10 million years from now. Um, evolutionally speaking, right? I mean, there's so much variations, there's so much random effects. Well, I think it's going to be really hard because think about this. Yeah. The Industrial Revolution occurred about 250 years ago. And look at the change in human behavior over a 250 year span. Our culture yeah. and, and social evolution has snowballed and it, gets, it keeps getting, it, it keeps changing faster and faster and faster and faster. I couldn't, you know, maybe back in, you know, 1950, you could predict a little bit because things were slower. Uh, but now, I mean, look how different life is now than it was two years ago. Uh, it's it's great. It's greatly changed. And in and, and some ways we that we might consider good, well, as I said, there's no good or bad, but people can say, oh, you know, people using social media is really bad, too much computer use. It's not. It's it, it's just what it is. You know. I mean, it's 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 like we always want to talk about the good old days, but these are the good old days. This is this is the, this is what humans do. This is a modern human. Um, yep. uh, in the past, maybe two hundred thousand years ago, they had their own iPhones and um, you know <laughs> the right. type of stuff that they used. 
well, uh, and part of the so they're not as sophisticated, but yeah. part of the modern human condition is we are we are entwined with our own technology. And in fact, most of us in in most places of the world, if we if we lose that technology, and I'm not just talking about cell phones and internet, um, I'm talking about the electricity grid. I'm I'm talking about, you know, you know, we don't do anything for ourselves to survive. Basically, if we lost all that infrastructure of our culture, we'd done. So we 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 have become entwined with our with our own technology, and it's part it's part of who we are, and our brains have adapted to that. Yeah, so this is where you know I keep thinking uh, the phenotype is is getting more and more brittle, in the sense that if you lose, for example, if I lose my iPhone, I would be, I would be stuck. I mean, I can't do anything anymore. That's uh, <laughs> what I'm talking about. And, and whether we like it or not, it, what's so funny though is we all complain about it. Like my iPhone, I'm at the University of California. I can't do anything without my iPhone. I can't park. I can't get into the building. I can't get onto any of the UC sites. I have to have this iPhone. And if I leave my iPhone at home, I got to go home and get it. I can't stand it. Yet, humans are the one who created this. We 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 created this whole thing right. <laughs> not that long ago. <laughs> Automobiles, electricity, as you mentioned, aircrafts. Um, there are things that we cannot live without now. And those things could go away at some point. That that is that is sort of the the, the risk um, issue I think we are dealing with, right? That's why I was thinking: is extinction probabilities increasing with time for, for any any species? I well, we know for a lot of species, yeah. extinction is increasing. I mean, <laughs> the variability of life on this planet is is going down and down and down and down. And you know, it was interesting because I was listening to NPR on the way to work this morning, and they were talking to birds about birds and the loss of variability of birds. And I think there are six billion less birds than there were in 1960. I mean, so it's bad for the birds. And they and somebody called in and said, "Well, doesn't this have to do with overpopulation in humans? Isn't this all a part of it?" And they kind of blew it off a little bit. And that's a huge problem, is that we're over. <laughs> We're overproducing. Other species would be doing the same. So yes, are we driving extinction of other species? Yes, we are. Are we moving towards our own extinction? Yes, probably. Um, do I think of that as a bad thing? I, I love humans. <laughs> I don't want us to go extinct. On the other hand, until the sun explodes, life on this planet Earth will continue, and it will generate new things, and and they will fill in the space um, that that humans occupied. And we're just we're just part of the the natural course of things. We're part of this huge chain link fence where everything's intertwined. Um, and 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 like we keep talking about climate change, and and we keep talking. We all try to recycle and do our bit. And you know, I, I think we're all we're all waiting for this the silver bullet. Like somebody's going to create something that will capture carbon and you know a new technology yeah a new technology yeah kind of the back of our minds we're all kind of hoping that new technology comes out and we're aware of it but we can't seem to help it um and and you know what what do i say i, I don't want i sound this sounds depressing but it's not meant to be depressing it's 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 the, also this is this is our shot shot on the planet earth so you, you know live your life um and enjoy it yeah, you know, one could argue there could be different outcomes uh, based on how you learn, how you act, how you manage, right? Okay. Yeah. And here's, let me just say something else. The pandemic could have had a very, very different outcome. It yeah. could have been slightly more deadly 
and infected slightly more people and we would have reduced the population that way. That would have been a game changer. Does any, for the planet itself and for the species, does anybody want that? Would anybody want that outcome? Absolutely not, right? I mean, but there could be, there could be scenarios that, you know, might help save the species despite ourselves. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, there is an alternative hypothesis, Leah, in the saying, you know, the reproduction rate for humans is declining. Uh, most of Europe, um, Americas, the only places where it's actually stable is places like India and China, right? So, and those uh, those are big countries. So we will continue to see rising population, but it is a sort of declining growth rate. Uh, and so some predictions are that we will top it off at I don't know, 8.9 8 8 billion is the most pessimistic forecast. I thought they were saying yeah. that it was going to be 10 billion by like 2050 or something, which is mind boggling. Yeah. So I want to go into another paper, the recent paper uh, related. Not all cortical expansions are the same. The co evolution of the neural cortex and the dorsal thalamus in mammals. So what is it? What is a dorsal thalamus? What does it do? OK, so the dorsal thalamus is a portion of the of the brain um, that receives um, lots of sensory input from your sensory receptors. It, it does other things and it's connected to other things. But there are nuclei in the dorsal thalamus that receive inputs from your eyes. They receive input from your cochlea. Um, they receive inputs from your skin um, or indirect inputs from your skin. Um, and so they there are some transformations that occur in the dorsal thalamus people are still trying to figure out exactly what the dorsal thalamus does they send those inputs to cortex that's the main highway of sensory information to the neocortex and this is important because everything the brain knows about the world is coming in for, all the information it has is from that very limited uh, um, number of sensory receptor arrays like your eyes um, gustation your tongue olfaction your skin your ears um, so, and when you look at the size of the neocortex compared to the number of neurons in those receptors, those special, those special organs that uh, transduce physical energy into the, the, the language of the nervous system, it's really small amount. And then the dorsal thalamus mm -hmm. takes that and it's, it's kind of, it's, it's not a huge structure, but it's, it, it's not tiny either. And then you have this big, huge brain that's making sense of this limited amount of sensory inputs. Um, the dorsal thalamus is really important because it's it's relaying these inputs to the neocortex. What's interesting, is it, yeah. oh, is, it, is, it, is it just relaying information or is it doing some pre-processing, combining things and then sending a package? Right. I'm I'm taking the it's relaying. No, no, it's not just relaying information. It's doing some pre-processing. And in fact, most of its inputs are from the cerebral cortex. So the cortex is, is, is actually gating what information gets to it. Right. It, OK. The point is that you have this huge expansion of neocortex. You haven't really changed the receptor array very much. So it's not like it's new, completely new sensory information that's coming into the cortex. It's how it's being combined and made, made sense of and used to make predictions. So it's almost like an inverted hourglass. You have a limited number of sensory inputs coming into the brain, a huge amount of processing in the neocortex and dorsal thalamus back and forth talking to each other, and then the final common pathway, which is some behavior which is also pretty small uh, if we look at motor you know the motor tracks or, or um, the spinal cord and so it's it's this huge neocortex that's evolved to do stuff <laughs> you know i mean 
other species live and survive and they do really quite well. Rodents are a great order. I mean, they, they've managed quite well. And most species that are successful don't have really huge brains, but we have this greatly expanded neocortex compared to um, an ex any kind of expansion of sensory receptor arrays or the expansion of the dorsal thalamus. So that's the, it's this differential expansion um, that's really quite astonishing. Um, yeah, I was just thinking, uh, Leah, I don't know much about this. So Neither do I. So, <laughs> there's not a, so the computer largely remains the same in the sense that, okay, the neocortex has expanded a little bit, uh, but the thalamus has been there, all the processes were there, all the data was coming into it. I'm thinking 200,000 years ago, but I didn't really have a need for all that data. I just need to know where the mountain is, where the water hole is, and, and so on and so forth. But the data it has been there. So now you can Basically, process that data time. into something different, right? Is that what's That's right. Basic data has been there for a very long time. So you have these, we call them the kind of first order nuclei of the thalamus, which are which are the, these sensory nuclei. that. The thalamus has expanded a little bit. There are other nuclei that are receiving input from the cortex, in, and they're they're expanded in things like primates. But if you look at a basic thalamus and cortex of a rat versus a human, I can identify the major sensory nuclei in in a rat brain or a mouse brain and a human, and they're homologous, probably derived from a common ancestor. Um, they're relaying visual input or auditory input to primary areas of the cortex. That's all there. That's all still intact. But around that basic thing, you have this expansion of other regions of cortex, like posterior parietal cortex, I said, that are that are, are doing more complex things, generating a sense of self, um, um, allowing you to uh, you know, explore objects and manipulate objects and reach and grasp for objects and manipulate them, um, amongst other things. Um, but and and that those areas that's the portion of the brain that's expanded and the, the portion of the dorsal thalamus that's expanded. Right. So all the channels remains the same, uh, sight, hearing, and so on and so forth. Data channels remain the same largely. Uh, and the data has been there. A lot of data was sitting there. And well, now we can analyze that, right? That's right. Right. So the data channel is what you're talking about. It's 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 vision. It's fo They're photons. The photons are transduced in the eye from photon from that kind of energy into action potentials. In the cochlea, um, you have basically differences in, in sound waves, whether it's in air or water, right? So differences of molecules moving in an environment. It's, it's taking that information, which is sound, and it's transducing it into the language of the nervous system. So I can go on and on. That basic information hasn't changed. You know, a, a photon is a photon is a photon. However, what has changed with culture is this combination of complex patterns of physical energy. So this conversation is nothing more than complex pattern of physical energy impinging on my nervous system via my sensory receptors going up to my neocortex and my neocortex is making a complex world of this. But 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 even like in, during development, I would argue love, you can say love and we all know what love is, but my, a maternal love is it's scent, um, it's the smell of mother, it's the cadence of a voice, it's touch, it's temperature. It's a complex pattern of physical stimuli impinging on the developing brain, changing how that brain wires itself. And if you have this environment or this context where social and cultural evolution are snowballing and changing really rapidly, the brain's going to change really rapidly. This mm -hmm. complex pattern of physical stimuli just seems to be getting more and more complex. It's not simply the sun has risen. There's a there's an orange that I could pick. 
Um, once you start getting into social systems, other species have social systems, that becomes more complex. Those portions of the brain are expanding. I'm sort of rambling here to tell you the truth. You can no, have no. people who are going to disagree with me. These are yeah. just your thoughts. Done, you know, okay? So, so I want to ask you, so suppose artificial intelligence really takes off. There are some indications uh, it is. It is really a data processing, efficient data processing machine that could potentially relieve the brain of, of data processing in the future. <laughs> and so could well, we get into a situation? <laughs> I, I, I can get online and I can get onto my computer and I can do a lot of stuff yeah. that, I, that I just don't need my brain to do anymore. I can get on my computer and on my calculator. <laughs> I don't need right. to do that anymore, right? So so that's that's great. Um, Did that have that implications for, you know, how the brain would, I mean, we, 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 I don't know if you have time to talk about the 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 future brain, the, the essays, um, the, the one of the essays that you have written. Um, does it have implications for how human brain could be in the future? And yeah. if that goes into culture and music, so perhaps our brains may start specializing in things that we didn't have any time for because we can take out the, you know, the pre-processing engine and say, go do some AI, give it to an AI machine. No, let, let it, <laughs> it's already happened. I mean, look at literature. Yeah. I mean, it used to be, I mean, when language emerged is controversial, so I won't even get into that. But we could say, I certainly say that, you know, having the, you know, reading and appreciating complex sentences is is a luxury. It's not a necessity. Um, and we do it, we do it well, and we write, you know, beautiful novels and essays and poems. Um, so we're already doing that, right? I mean, and 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 we are already losing something. So, for example, most young people don't know how to, you know, have they don't have the cursive writing. They don't exactly. do that anymore. They yeah. can't do that. And in fact, I learned, you know, did the cursive writing and had it on the ruled paper. I don't know what your upbringing was like, but it was you're doing all this. Yeah, I, yeah. I've been writing on a computer for so long. I find it really hard to write with a pen and paper. I mean, it's it's. It's almost gone. And I like I'm putting letters before other letters. It's almost like I'm dyslexic and I'm not dyslexic on my, my keyboard, <laughs> but with the pen and, and paper, I don't even like to write out Christmas cards because it's like, I like I'm gonna cross things out because I spelled them wrong. So so we're, we're you know, we're, we're living in this brave new world already. Um, yeah, anyway. You know, it, has, it has uh, policy implications, right? This is not particular research, but I want to get your perspective on this. So in education, one could argue things like STEM, uh, engineering, medicine, those things could be automated in the future. So is, is it, does education, does it require sort of a redesign because the focus areas that- You know that what? We, yeah. uh, Potentially, right? I mean, potentially, and it's not necessarily a bad thing. When I was learning physics in high school, I had to use a slide rule, man. I mean, mm. what? I don't want to lose a thesis. <laughs> the thing is, though, it made me think about physics in a different way than if I'm just using my cell phone. That's yeah. the, I mean, so now you have all these language correction software packets. You know, what's that going to do to, what's that going to do to how we, you know, write novels and 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 how we use the English language? Not there's nothing right or wrong in evolution, so I'm not going to knock anything. Um, what it, you know, whatever humans generate is is of this planet, and so it's just a new generation. What I don't like is 
it makes it harder if you don't grow up with this. So, so I'm not that old, but there are, there are times I have to ask my graduate students how to do stuff. I'm like, I know, I just, <laughs> you gotta help me because it doesn't come as naturally. Right. There's also a broader economic question. So, you know, I'm just speculating here. We have things like guaranteed minimum wages. So it used to be society was sort of, you know, set up to learn, 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 go work, work, work. All this work, work is dead. There, there, there's no more work anymore. So all I, of these things the, that we do, yeah. I, but I, I agree, but, but that just changed really recently, I think since the pandemic. Yeah. And you know what? I think about myself and like, like when I was in graduate school, I lived in the laboratory. I had no social life whatsoever. I mean, it was ridiculous. I would never want my graduate students to be like that. And it was all this work, work, work. And, and I think right now I'm more and more saying, I refuse to do anything with a deadline. Because why do I have to? Why would I impose that stress on myself? I'm not lazy, but in terms of science, I love science, but I don't like academics. I mean, most of my job is not like going in there and doing experiments and having fun. A lot of it is like being on committees and yeah. and we impose this on ourselves. And I, I, I'm just slowly stepping back from the saying, it's not that I don't wanna work, it's that I wanna do the type of work that I wanna do. And I don't wanna do what we as a group have decided, even though I wasn't part of that decision about like, I don't wanna be on the committee of committees. Yes, there is a committee of committees at UC Davis. I'm told it's a very important committee, but it's, you, you know, it's just, it's gotten crazy. Yeah, the pandemic, as you say, it had a had a huge effect on it. I mean, we had this quiet quitting in in business uh, places, right? So people are saying they they finally understood life is somewhat limited and short. <laughs> uh, if you keep yeah. running, um, or one one moment, you know, you're going to just no. drop out, right? Yeah. Well, this is exactly right. I mean, I came to that conclusion during the pandemic, and very recently, my mom was diagnosed with stage four four cancer pancreatic cancer and she came and lived with us and, and recently died and that got me thinking too and even what I just said to you as a biologist we're going to go extinct I don't know if it's going to be within my lifetime but the beauty is that we are given this moment you know this this little point in time the time we're born and the time we die and what are we doing with that time we're doing a whole bunch of crap we don't want to do and of course we have to be part of a community of course we have to care about each other of course we do have to do something to sustain ourselves but a lot of what we decided we're doing, a lot of how we're spending our time is nonsense. And and like, you wanna just break break free from that. Then the pandemic taught me that, and my mom taught me that, you know? Right, and you know, a lot of people are now saying they don't need a lot of resources to actually do that. Um, if, if your goals are, you know, not, not to become a millionaire or have three cars or five houses, life right. can be quite simple, right? Well, and, and a lot of those things that people desire um, they, they we're, we're, like these are proxies of proxies of proxies, and I've written about this before. L listen, you know, I mean, we're, like to get things like diamonds, or like I watched my husband loves that gold show in Alaska. We are <laughs> like, destroying acres and acres and acres of forest to get like a handful of gold dust. What is gold dust? Gold dust is not useful. I can't drink it. I can't eat it. It's I'm a useless metal. <laughs> it is, it's, but I'm destroying a real resource to get this proxy of resources. And this is crazy. We got to stop doing this. And 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 
we don't we can keep doing whatever we want to do but i feel that we should we should we should stop doing this and you know now you hear more and more about people fighting over water rights um yeah. but i In think California especially yeah to live a happy life you don't have to have three cars and you, but you need, you know, what's 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 not good is, I mean, there's so many people in the United States and across the world that really have nothing. And this is juxtaposed with people who are fabulously wealthy. And this this can't this can't go on or should not go on. Um, but, how, you know, how do you reverse that? I, I don't know. I'm, I'm rambling, but you agree with me on these things. Now we're getting a little philosophical. And there you go. No, it, it's uh, so do you, do you want to finish up with your um, essay? in the future of the brain. So what is the what is the message in that essay that you want to leave? Oh, I don't know. I wrote it a while ago. You should have read it and you should have got the message. <laughs> I think the future of the brain is that I can't remember what it's kind of what I said. I, that that I can't predict exactly what's going to happen, but I can, if you tell me the the circumstances under which a brain develops, I can make some pretty good predictions um, of how it might look. I can tell you you're not going to you're not going to grow a new arm if you want more manual dexterity. Um, and that, you know, humans are might, you know, we should really stop and consider, you know, our own our own mortality in, in a real way. I mean, we sort of sometimes think we're going to live for another 5 million years or 10 million years. Chances of that are highly unlikely because species don't, they just don't stay around that long. Um, anyway, you know, I, I'm, I'm yeah, I want to ask you, so I know that you you think about this quite a bit. So the cultural component, um, how are we progressing? I mean, we have 200 countries, five major religions. Uh, you know, some could argue we are getting integrated, and others could say we are getting disintegrated. So where do you think we are going from a cultural, worldwide cultural perspective? Well, I mean, I think there are certain things that are universal now. I mean, even individuals that are are not wealthy have cell phones, which means they have access to social media, which means it's a great leveler or, or equalizer in some ways. Yeah. Um, but in terms of cultural evolution, I, it's hard to say. See, look, I, I love different cultures and I'm okay with different religions. I mean, this is religion and culture are about food and I love to cook. <laughs> Seriously, man. I mean, you know, that's true. And so, so that you know, we are becoming more globalized. There's no question about that. Um, even countries that aren't as wealthy are 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 in, to a large extent globalized. Um, whether whether we lose something in in that process, well, it's bound to happen. I hope it doesn't. I think I think that there are enough people who care about tradition um, that that want to maintain those cultures. I don't. I can't tap into the young generation. I mean, do they care? Do they care about the culture of Thanksgiving? Do they care about any sort of religious, um, cultural holiday? I mean, or or is it just everything's just, you know, becoming really uniform? I don't know. You know, you should interview somebody younger than I, like a young scientist who's, you know, 25 years old, and ask them their view of the world and this, because I, I don't know if I have any special insight. No, it's, um, I, you know, I, I think uh, we have a, Maybe, maybe uh, I'm speculating here. Um, nearly eight billion people, half of them speak a singular language, English. I don't know if that happened in the past. So that is a heavy integration phenomenon. Right? Oh, yeah. Anywhere in the world, we can talk one language. Um, with that, you're going to lose a lot of stuff. I'm I'm pretty okay with it. 
some people are not. So, so there's a tension there. Um, and we see that tension in the US in the political arena, essentially. The fragmentation we see is along those lines too. Um, a lot of people don't like integration. They want to make America great again. Uh, rewind time, hundred years. No, and 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 there is this tendency in the United States. They everybody wants to go back to the good old days, and you can't go back. You you, you can't. There is like we have to go to back to pre-pandemic. There is no pre-pandemic. Things just keep moving along, and they keep moving along. And that normal back then is not the normal now, and we're never going to get back there again because too much has changed. Too many brains have changed, right? It's it's you know. It, okay. Some folks are working on a time machine, so uh, I don't know when the, when that comes in. But when it comes in, then all this all this is out of the window. Yeah, the time <laughs> machine. Yeah, I mean, so anyway, all right. I think I think we we've, we've covered all everything. No. Excellent, excellent. Yeah. Um, thanks for spending time with me. This has been great. Thanks for letting me ramble. That that that's been lovely. Thank you. <laughs> I hope you Hopefully. edit out any stupid stuff I say. No. <laughs> So... This is a Scientific Sense podcast providing unscripted conversations with leading academics and researchers on a variety of topics. If you'd like to sponsor this podcast, please reach out to info at scientificsense.com.